Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. a show planned uh, for today. We are going to talk today with George Barna about millennials and their worldview. It's going to be really helpful in terms of understanding some of the movements in the culture today, particularly those that are driven by young adults. Richard Levine is going to be with me. Uh, We're going to talk about um, his book, which he co-authored. It's called America's First Adversary. If you're not familiar with Richard Levine, um, he served with President Reagan um, on the National Security Council staff. And during that time, Richard was the director of policy development for President Reagan's NSC staff, um, which means he worked with guys like Oliver North and John Poindexter and others. Uh, He's a really fascinating character himself, um, but he is trying to raise America's awareness of the the very real existential threat that China uh, is. That's that's not a very well-constructed sentence. I apologize. But he's going to be here in the second half of this hour, um, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Jim Dennison is going to be here at the top of hour two. If you're not familiar with the Dennison Forum, I highly recommend it. And then I've got Oz Guinness in the bottom of the second hour. Um, He has a renewed edition of The Dust of Death. It it really reaches back into the 1960s and helps us understand what's happening today. Uh, so anyway, it's just going to be a jam-packed couple of hours this morning on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for joining me in it. Let me lead off with this. The former First Lady of the United States, Michelle Obama, has uh, issued what I expect to be sort of her final word in terms of, I kind of hope it's her final word, in terms of uh, her support of Joe Biden. I mean, it's not surprising that she's supportive of Joe Biden. It's surprising to me um, the language that she is choosing to use uh, and just how negative she has chosen to go. And yet maybe it shouldn't be a surprise. Um, She's openly calling the current president a racist, his policies racist. Um, She is telling people to vote like uh, like their life depends on it. So maybe we we should figure out how we are going to frame that in the conversations of the day. Um, When the former first lady comes out and says that, you know, the current president is trafficking in resentment and division, how is it that we as Christians traffic in unity? Like, how, how do we do that? How do we actually become people who sow peace into the conversations of the day? How do we engage in civil discourse even when others are being um, totally uncivil? And when it comes to how you're going to vote, uh, maybe don't vote like your life depends on it. Maybe vote like the future of the nation depends on it. Like, right? So when we talk about life, what are we talking about? We just talking selfishly about our own life, because if you're if you're like me, if you're a Christian, you're already dead. I'm already dead. Like you know, there's just there's just nothing left the world can do to me. I'm already dead. I am reanimated in Christ Jesus. I I already live again. I'm already living my eternal life. Um, yeah, I'm gonna die a physical death one day, but I'm already dead. I'm already uh, no longer a slave to sin. 
Uh, and I am a slave to Christ. I'm an instrument in the hand of the living God, and he can use me any way he wants, any day of the week, any hour of the day, just as however he sees fit. And so uh, I'm going to live as a Christian no matter who wins this presidential election. And I'm going to live as a Christian no matter what form of governance I ultimately live under in this country or some other. So that's the determination I think that Christians need to make in terms of the his, the histrionics now related to uh, the 20 some days left in the voting process that we are calling the 2020 presidential election cycle here in the United States of America. Does it matter? Yes. Uh, is it important? Yes. Is it uh, worthy of histrionics? No, 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 no. We are not going to uh, lose ourselves in the midst of these conversations. And so, you know, yes, absolutely vote. It's a high priority. Um, vote like your life depends on it. Hmm. Maybe vote like life itself depends on it. Now, I mean, it'd be a much more interesting conversation to have with somebody to have a conversation about the protection of innocent life than to have a conversation about my own life here and now uh, and the sort of humanist approach to the conversation. So there you go. Elevate the conversation today. Deepen it. Broaden it. First up, I've got George Barna. He and I are going to talk about uh, millennials. Millennials have a radically different uh, system of beliefs when it comes to respect and faith and even the nation of America. This is going to help you understand how young adults are thinking today, why they are voting the way they are, why they're protesting the things they're protesting. So George Barna up next. We'll be right back. Well, it's always fun to have George Barna on with us. He's back. You can find um, what we're going to be talking about today at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. George, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good to be back with you, Carmen. Thank you. So we've talked with you on prior occasions about some of these findings from the American Worldview Inventory 2020, showing the you know very rapid erosion of the biblical worldview in American culture. Um, let's hone in today on the worldview that you um, that you've you know sort of discovered in the millennial generation. What do we need to know about the millennials? Well, you know, when we look at the big picture, we know that the older two generations, the boomers and the elders, about 9% of them have a biblical worldview. It's cut almost in half when you get to the next younger generation, often known as Gen X. But then when you get to the millennials, it's the lowest of all. We estimate that just 2% of that particular group has a biblical worldview. And as I dug into that to try to figure out, well, what's really going on there? There were three patterns that kept emerging, one of which is that overall they seem to have less respect for people. Secondly, they seem to be intent on disengaging from or maybe even redefining Christianity. And then thirdly, uh, they also are significantly less enthusiastic about being American and doing what it takes to be a good citizen in America, at least from traditional viewpoints. So those three things really jumped out. Those are not the only issues that we see, of course, but those are very significant ones that I think describe a lot about what's going on in our culture today. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you take, well, sir, let's 
point out that millennials, because I think that sometimes we think about millennials, we imagine we're still talking about teenagers, and we're certainly not. We are. These are full-grown adults now. We're talking about people, what, like 25 to 39? Is that kind of the age range that we're looking at when we're talking about millennials today? Yeah, actually, the way we, we've defined it, a uh, fairly typical way, 1984 through 2002. So they're 18 to 36 years old these days. All right, 18 to 36. So young adults um, and, you know, full-grown adults, um, and only 2% of them are operating out of a biblical worldview. That's pretty stunning and staggering. Less respect for people um, basically operating in their own definition of Christianity or a disregard of it altogether and not excited about being American. I mean, if you take those sort of three character qualities and then you look out across the horizon of the culture, it does help us understand why we're seeing what we're seeing in the news of the day. It not only does that, I think the thing also that that really troubles me deep down is that when you look at that age bracket, 18 to 36, we're talking about the primary parenting generation of young children in America today. And of course, parents continue to be a major influence on the worldview of children. We know that a person's worldview develops primarily between, say, 15 to 18 months of age and the age of 13. So the people who have a huge impact on that are the parents. And if this is what this particular generation of parents believes, naturally that's what they're going to pass on. And so we're going to continue to see this pattern in the next generation and maybe even the one after that, unless we do something very intentional and strategic to change it. All right. Again, we are talking about the uh, American Worldview Inventory 2020 Uh, And we are uh, talking with George Barna from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Specifically, our conversation today is honing in on millennials and their worldview. Um, Maybe uh, let's maybe let's unpack the disrespect for people, disengagement from Christianity and sort of the less enthusiastic about being American. Let's let's unpack those. When you say that those are observations you've made, sort of what's the evidence behind that? Well, there were three particular bodies of insight that emerged to form that conclusion, one of which was that this is a group that generally has less respect for human beings, for other people. And so we found that compared to other generations, they were considerably less likely to say that they treat other people the same way they want to be treated. As Christians, we know that as the golden rule. And that's kind of been a a cornerstone of American society for what more than 200 years. So, you know, to to be giving up on that idea was a big thing. But then we also saw that they're twice as likely as other people to say that the only kind of people they will always respect are those who hold the same religious and political views that they do. And they're also uh, the most likely to acknowledge that they're committed to getting even with people who they think have done something wrong to them. Now, you add to that the fact that they have less respect not only for other people, but for life itself. They were the least likely, less than half as likely as other adults, to say that they believe that life is sacred. They're twice as likely to describe human beings not as individuals made in the image of God and for his purposes, but as either material substance only or that all existence is just an illusion. And a majority of them also believe that people are basically good, not that they're sinners 
who need a savior, but that they're okay as are as they are. And then a final element had to do with honesty and trust. Uh, they admitted that they're less likely to keep their promises than other people. We found through some testing that they're more likely to lie than are other people in order to protect their reputation or their best interests. You put all this together, and the only conclusion you can come to is this is a group of people that really doesn't care about people beyond themselves. Yeah, I would say that, you know, framed the other way, they're very interested in themselves and their own preservation and influence, um, which, you know, which means they're not as interested in other people being honored or respected or elevated. So I think those are really fascinating observations. Uh, George Barna and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to pivot to um, the question of disengagement from Christianity, an observation that George has made in relationship to the worldview of millennials. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Now I'm just a All right. We are talking today with George Barna. We are talking about more outcomes of the American Worldview Inventory 2020. This particular conversation is about the worldview of the millennial generation. George, talk with us a little bit about what you're observing in terms of the disengagement from Christianity among millennials in America. Well, Carmen, when we measure a person's worldview, it's a combination of both beliefs and behavior. So we had a lot of measures related to their religious beliefs and their values and morals, and then a lot of measures related to their behavior. And what we found was that in both instances, we saw that millennials are significantly less likely to embrace biblical teachings, and they're significantly less likely to be practicing uh, different kinds of biblical habits that we're encouraged to engage in. And so whether it's real cornerstone kinds of beliefs about uh, the nature of God or the existence of absolute moral truth or that God is the representation of all truth, the purpose of life, uh, the relationship between God and humanity, all of those kinds of things and others, uh, it, millennials have a very different perspective, a more self-centered a more self-reliant kind of perspective. And then when we looked at religious behaviors and moral behaviors, we found that they are engaging in the development of a new, very different kind of moral code that's not based on any kind of external objective truth, but it's based primarily upon their feelings, their emotions, their experiences, their desires. And that's what's driving that. And of course, that's related to their general disengagement from organized religion in all its forms, whether it's things such as reading the Bible on their own, attending church services, participating in small groups, all those kinds of things, their numbers are much lower than any of the uh, other three adult generations that we compare them to. So there's one there's one line in the chart related to the important spiritual differences where you you know you show us how millennials compare to other adults and there's a line in here where you're measuring the uh, I guess the answer to the question is, you know is the primary purpose of life do I understand the primary purpose of life to know love and serve God and I feel like that is question number one of the Westminster Greater Catechism or Larger Catechism you know what is what is the 
the great end of man, and it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It is it is to know and love and serve God. Only 18% of millennials say that's the primary purpose of life, but heartbreakingly, only 31% of other adults. Like, I'm I'm feeling increasingly alone in the culture when I read this material. Well, staying in line. You know, it's, it's not easy. To get I'm out with of George. In the morning, I'll tell I'm going to have to get an I'm with, I'm with George shirt. I'm with George. Yeah. yeah. You know, the sad thing is we're not going to have to print many of those because you're exactly <laughs> right. I mean, when we look at all of these numbers, you know, what I'm doing here is I'm comparing our youngest generation to those that preceded them. And and simply trying to show, you know what, we're moving in the wrong direction at a very fast pace. But when we look at the big picture of, well, who can we turn to to watch, to observe, to learn what it should be the case, biblically speaking, there's no generation that we can really look at and say, aha, they've figured it out. They're the great models of it. I mean, this is a process that started decades ago, and we've never taken the deterioration of Christianity in America seriously enough to say, okay, let's figure out what's at the heart of this, and it's worldview, because worldview is what drives our decisions. It drives our behavior. And so if we don't attack it at a worldview level, and all we try to do is fill up churches with more bodies, have more people given more money for more real estate and buildings and whatnot. I mean, that's a band-aid that may make it look better, but when we get to the heart of what people are really about, we haven't done anything about that, and that's where we need to focus. All right, and then let's talk about this third major, I'm going to call it a distinction, you know, that differentiates millennials from other generations, they are less enthusiastic about America. I will say this is the this is the portion that when I shared it with my you know eighty now eighty two and eighty seven year old parents, it did help them better understand what they see when they when they watch the news and what's happening on some of the city streets of America. This is important that the millennial generation, this eighteen to thirty, what are they? Eighteen to thirty-six. Yeah, this group of people are less enthusiastic about America. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, what we found out of out of this research is that they've got relatively limited awareness of an interest in government and politics in general. They're much less informed about the news of the day related to politics and government. They're, you know, far less informed about different kinds of political conditions, how the system works. They are the most enthusiastic of all the generations about completely changing the system, which, of course, is interesting. They don't really understand what we have, why we have it, where it came from, how it works. They just know they want to change it. And so they are, for instance, the generation that's most enthusiastic about leaving capitalism behind and moving into socialism. When you look at their history, what we find is that they have a pretty undistinguished voting record. They also have a very different take on leadership. They don't believe that leaders are people who are individuals who empower others to fulfill their individual purposes and to encourage us collectively to work together toward a particular vision. They tend to think of great leaders as those who are most popular 
or maybe those who are most efficient in what they do. And, and by the way, efficiency is usually a hallmark of management, not of leadership. And they're also, we found out, the least likely to say that they were willing to do whatever is necessary for the good of the United States. So it's a wholesale different perspective on what it means to be an American citizen. And I think you can see this coming for a long time because we've taken citizenship out of the education that public school students get. We know that it's not talked about in families or churches. Where are kids supposed to pick this up? Uh, it does answer the question, why are they so satisfied with utilitarian answers to um, societal questions? And so I, I do think that there are some there's some helpful things that this helps us see. And then we have to do the hard work of, you know, how do we change this trajectory? How do we speak into the lives of these individuals? Um, where is my life in proximity with a person in the millennial generation? You know, because obviously these are some conversations that we absolutely need to be having uh, if if we don't want them to take the culture where they are bound to take it, which is kind of into nothingness because they don't have a plan. They're just interested in tearing it down. They don't have a, a plan of what they would build in its place. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you, you said conversations. I mean, that's really what has to be taking place here is that we've got to build a, a trust-based relationship with them so that we can have these kinds of conversations without them shutting us down as we even broach the topics. And so building those relationships and then also modeling for them what it looks like to be a good citizen and talking about the benefits of good citizenship, all of that is going to be vitally important toward moving the country forward. Um, George, on other occasions, you and I have had uh, conversations about the need to you know, sort of rethink um, kids' ministry and the way that we uh, interact with kids in church and through Christian education. I just wanted to highlight for you, if you're not familiar with it, Awana has completely uh, redesigned their approach to kids' ministry, and um, and you would appreciate the tact that they're taking. So I just wanted to share with you, I think it's Resilient Disciples. Let me just check it. ResilientDisciples.com. Um, and so we had them on to talk about it, but it's so aligned with what you are sort of hoping to see and find that I wanted to be sure you knew about it. That's encouraging. Thanks for bringing that yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, one encouraging thing out there. I mean, I know there are many. All right, well, it's always an encouragement to talk with you. Uh, George Barna from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. You guys can find uh, all that we've been talking about today at ArizonaChristian.edu. What you're looking for um, is the Cultural Research Center, and then you are going to be looking for the American Worldview Values Study 2020. Did I get it? Did I get all those words in the right order? I think so. American Worldview Inventory. And that's yeah, what you're you looking go. for. Yep. That's yep. what you're looking for. George, thank you as always so much. I'm going to go look for my T-shirt. All right. All right. I'm you, with I'll George. I'll be the guy in front of you. There you go. <laughs> the arrow will be pointing at you. All right. Oh, Thanks. We're in trouble now. Thanks, Thanks brother. We'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. We'll be right back. All right, next up, I've got Richard Levine. Uh, he is one of the authors of America's Number One Adversary. It is a book about China, the threat of China, um, actually the existential threat as Ch of China, and some 70 recommendations of what might be done to thwart communist China's plans to dominate the world. Um, Richard and I are also just going to talk about the major worldview distinctive 
uh, or distinction between what we as Westerners, particularly Americans, think and believe and what um, the Chinese communists think and believe. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ever ask a question of your team only to receive a one-word answer or just a grunt? (laughs) Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's a common experience for moms and dads all across the country. They strike up a conversation with their teen only to be stonewalled. That can be pretty discouraging. But let me offer some encouragement. No matter how tight-lipped your teen seems to be right now, he still wants a relationship with you. Deep down, what he or she most desires is a sense of significance and security in their relationship with mom and dad. Don't stop spending one-on-one time together every week. Don't stop asking those questions and waiting for the answer. Your patience will pay off sooner than you think. There's more from Mark Gregston on Parenting Today's Teens website. Get helpful tips for moms and dads when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org. Well, good morning again. Joining me now, Richard Levine. Uh, He is one of three authors of America's First Adversary. It's a book focused on helping us understand China. It offers some 70 recommendations of what must be done to thwart communist China's plans to dominate the world. Richard Levine has been party to this conversation for a long time. Uh, He served with, among others, Oliver North in the NSC staff for President Ronald Reagan. During that time, Richard was the director of policy development for President Reagan's NSC staff. Uh, he has subsequently served as a Deputy Assistant Sec- Secretary of the Navy for Technology Transfer and Security Assistance. He has lots of commendations to his name. He's joining us today really to bring the communist regime in China into view and make sure that we don't lose sight of uh, of that particular priority. The book, again, is America's First Adversary. Richard Levine, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, well, I'm so glad to be with you, Carmen. I really am. And it's such an important topic. Uh, and the book uh, really highlights what we as a nation can do to make sure that America is always the greatest power on our planet. Well, and Richard, you, um, you know, I think my audience is very, very familiar with lots of what we might call the second order threats. Um, very, you know, very aware of human rights abuses, very aware of economic and uh, in- intellectual theft, very aware of uh, threats posed by China militaristically. And let's say, you know, even their uh, a- aggressive behavior in terms of building their own islands in the South China Sea. What I would like for you to start off with today is maybe the more um, ominous threat, the existential threat. And it's really a worldview threat. What do Americans need to understand about the worldview of the communist Chinese uh, beyond maybe the the second order threats that we hear about most often in the news? Well, you've really put your finger on it. May I just go through a few paragraphs that appear right at the end of our book, America's Number One Adversary, and what we must do about it now? I really think it'll inform your viewers as to the primary focus that particularly people of faith must hold close to their hearts. May I do that? 
perfect. Yes, please. The prime difference between the United States and the People's Republic of China must be explained clearly. Communists believe their citizens are part of a collective that exists to serve the state. This constitutes a hive mind. Free people are individuals. Indeed, America's Judeo-Christian heritage confirms God's relationship is with each person. In the PRC, the state is sanctified. Our founding fathers believed this to be a cardinal mistake. They comprehended the great wisdom set out in Mark 12:17, and Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. Jesus' statement in Mark is the first enunciation of the necessity for the separation of church and state. And I would add parenthetically, this is not the modern conception of removing the church and religion from the public square. I'm talking about the separation as the founding fathers understood it to be. The paramount importance of which is best understood through the study of its contrapositive, which is its opposite. If church and state are not separate, their natures and dominions are joined. This is not Christianity. It's not Judaism. It's unacceptable, for it posits, in effect, the divinity of the state. If the church and government are conjoined, such action is tantamount to a dictum that all the promises of religion and faith are available in this world. But this is the antithesis of Jesus's teaching. Yet it is this antithesis that betrays the sleight of hand encountered in communism. For to erect heaven on earth through man's labors is an impossibility, the attempted inculcation of which has caused the death of hundreds of millions of lives, including tens of millions of men, women, and children, in the People's Republic of China in the last century alone. It is this substitution of what cannot be obtained in place of God's promise of life after life that has led China to become a force of evil in this world. For in China today, the state is sanctified. America must learn from this example and never attempt to enshrine an all-powerful state, for such a progression can only lead our nation into madness. One last paragraph, if I may. When political power combines with media and business establishments doing the government's bidding, and that government is unipolar, one party, there can be no checks and balances and there will be no constraint. That is what we face in China today and what we could face in our country tomorrow, the existence of a single all-powerful party coupled with an echoic press a technocracy, and a corporate business class all in lockstep, eroding completely the preeminence of the individual. So that is the challenge. So that's Richard Levine. Um, Those are some of the paragraphs that come toward the end of the book, America's First Adversary. I know that your appetite for the book is now whetted. Um, Richard, uh, you highlight there China's... uh, well, view of the individual, which really is not a view of the individual at all. Um, China's view of the state as uh, as sanctified or divine, clearly different from both the American worldview and the uh, Christian or biblical worldview. 
I want to um, I want to hone in on maybe some of the uh, of the evidence um, and some of the things that people would have heard about, which you uh, which you use really as illustrations there at the very end. So when we talk about things like Belt and Road or when we talk about the threat of surveillance technology or when we talk about um, uh, antibiotics mostly being you know exclusively produced in China and therefore creating uh, a challenge um, for the rest of us. There, there are all kinds of things that we uh, directions that we could go in the conversation. When we talk about what you might consider second order issues, what rises to the top of the list for you of the second order threats? Well, there are two. First, and the president is taking action on both. I might say. First is the repat- we must repatriate the production of medicines and also the raw materials that go into medicines, either to our own shores or to reliable allies. Certainly, the administration uh, is looking at this most closely. There's been excellent work in this regard, and there's already been an important executive order by the president. The other issue that is paramount Uh, The second order issue is intellectual property theft. Now, I want to inform your listeners in a way that everyone can grasp what is at stake in this domain. Richard, can we can we pause right there? Because I want I want to hear the full answer to that uh, question. I want to hear that full explanation. But we have to take a very, very brief break. So when we come back, Richard Levine is going to explain to us. Uh, intellectual property theft in relationship to China, why it is one of the paramount second-order threats following the existential threat that China is, not only to our way of life, but to our way of thinking and conceiving of reality. Richard Levine is my guest. The book is America's First Adversary. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Richard Levine, and let me correct something that I have been uh, saying inaccurately. Uh, the book is America's number one adversary. Number one. Look for the pound sign. Number one. America's number one adversary and what we must do about it now. Richard Levine, one of three co-authors, uh, John Poindexter, uh, Robert McFarlane, and Richard Levine. Richard Levine is my guest today. Richard, go ahead and unpack for us, unroll for us the the intellectual property threat, which you uh, list as one of the two paramount second-order threats behind the existential threat that that China poses. Well, yes, intellectual property theft is, of course, stealing, usually by means of computers, uh, designs, patents, proprietary information. It could also mean, in the case of our, for instance, uh, military equipment, the introduction of counterfeit parts that are supposed to come from another source but are counterfeited in China, which may compromise uh, the military article, a plane or a uh, vehicle of some sort. So it's a very broad category. Uh, For instance, China stealing uh, software radically lowers the price of development of products in China, because for many companies, a huge percentage of the cost of developing a new product is acquiring software, and this they have to buy in the market. But to your point, the theft for the last 10 years is somewhere between two and three trillion dollars. Now, what is a trillion dollars? It's a million stacks of a million dollars. 
So if China in totality stole $3 trillion from the United States during 10 years, that's enough money to have made 3 million families in America instant millionaires. Richard, I have um, a couple of things on my radar that we've talked about here on the program um, related to China. One, uh, we've talked about fairly frequently, and that is religious freedom, the human rights abuses of China, um, particularly with the Uyghur population in view. Um, we have also talked about uh, the, the threat of not only China as a surveillance state, but the AI technology that they're now using. And these these storylines are related to one another. Talk with us about um, uh, about China, it, just in terms of its human rights abuses, bring the Uyghurs into focus for us and and how you think an international partnership might be able to bring influence, um, you know, upon President Xi and the Communist uh, Party in China um, in relationship to, frankly, just the treatment of people. Well, there are many, many narratives that are coming out of China with regard to the Uyghurs who are a Muslim group in the north of China, but there are Muslims throughout the country, as there are Christians. Uh, China numbers, uh, your audience probably knows, uh, about 45 million confirmed Christians. There could be triple or more that number. And the amount of abuse uh, right now, for instance, for the uh, Christian population, we're getting a lot of word that China the state, the Communist Party, is rewriting the New Testament and changing it completely in terms of its message to make it a, a message that propounds statism, which, of course, as we spoke, is the antithesis of the message of the uh, New Testament. Uh, in terms of the Uyghurs, there are stories about organ harvesting. There are uh, mass re-education camps. It's truly appalling. And uh, freedom of religion must be freedom for everyone to practice their religion. Otherwise, over time, history has shown a preference religion becomes a religion that has been subverted. Uh, So we know what America stands for, and this is the goal that we must have for China. Uh, If I can talk to the second part of your question in terms of an alliance structure— Uh, Starting in 2007, there was something called the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue that was started between Japan, Australia, the the United States, and India. Uh, My co-authors and I believe very strongly, and we've seen evidence that Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of uh, State, is moving in this direction, believe that we must form a NATO-type alliance with these nations, plus South Korea, to include other nations such as Indonesia, perhaps in the future, and New Zealand, to really serve as a countervailing force to stop Chinese expansionism in the Indo-Pacific region. India is the key country because only India has a comparable population to China's. And many projections show that by the turn of this century, by 2100, India might be the most dominant economic power on the planet. So uh, you see the importance of a tight, tight bond uh, between the United States and India. 
So, Richard, I'm sure that most people listening right now um, have not thought this deeply nor broadly about China. Um, and, and so maybe as we close, let's bring the people of China into view, because I've heard you address this before, and I think it's just really essential. We are talking about um, a regime that has been in power for a period of time, but, uh, but behind or beneath all of that is a people. Talk, talk about um, the, the Chinese people for a moment. Well, China rightly views itself as a civilization. It has a history that goes back at least 4,000 years. The communist junta that took control of China with an iron fist has substantiated itself on the Chinese mainland only since 1949. So it does not have to be the future of China. China, great people, some of the most accomplished people on the planet, people who deserve prosperity, wealth, freedom of religion, uh, other freedoms, freedom of expression. And they don't have this, going back to the point you raised, Carmen, about the surveillance state, all the modern technologies are being applied to score, to give individual scores to every all 1.4 billion Chinese in terms of how they act in accordance with the state's dictums. God forbid that should ever come to America, that type of policing, but it's truly out of 1984. China is one of the great civilizations of humankind, and we, we must return them to their illustrious past. Richard Levine, um, thank you so very much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. I know that uh, listeners are now intrigued. The book is America's Number One Adversary. You're actually looking for uh, the number sign, the hashtag there, America's Number One Adversary. It is uh, not only a book about China, it's also a book about what we must do about it and why we must do it now. So America's number one adversary and what we must do about it now. Richard Levine, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Real, real pleasure to talk with you. All right, friends, we've got uh, a brief break and then we'll wrap up the hour. We'll be right back. Friends, let's uh, be in the Word of God today before we get out there into the world that He so loves. And so let me, as I am frequent to do, where in the Word are you today? There are lots of worldly concerns, and we uh, are people as as agents of God's grace and ambassadors of, of His kingdom. We are rightly concerned about the things of the world, but we need to concern ourselves first with the things of God. So where is your mind set today? Because where your mind is set will be will determine your mindset. So where is your mind set today? And is your mind set on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? Or is your mind set on uh, things, you know, frankly, beneath your feet or right under your nose or in your belly, right? So where is your mind set? Because your mindset will determine your mindset. So let our minds be set today on things which are above, Yes, in order that we might bring God back into the conversations of the day, that we might bring eternity to bear on temporal realities, that we might reconnect the eternal with the everyday in ways that honor Jesus. That's uh, that's really what I am all about and seeking to help you do in the day which now lies immediately before us. We've got another hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.